0: You're listening to The Ridge Weekly Podcast. To learn more about Chestnut Ridge Church, visit us online at theridge.church. Although the Bible covers thousands of years of history and is filled with true stories and accounts, there is one story that ties all the others together. The story of God's plan to bring people into a relationship with Himself through the death and resurrection of His Son. This story is revealed throughout the Bible through prophecies, the Old Testament law, and through God's interactions with humanity. Listen to this talk from our Easter series, Foretold, where we will look at some of the hidden messages of redemption found in the Old Testament Bible stories.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, Before I became a pastor, I worked for about 10 different companies. Uh, The reason I worked for so many different employers was that I was, most of these were jobs, they weren't like careers. It's work I did while I was attending school or during the summer. And so I've mentioned before, for example, that uh, for one year I delivered flowers or I worked at a florist. And I would deliver the arrangements, but I'd clean up around the shop, but I'd also make some arrangements based on this FTD floral book we had that had pictures of what the different arrangements were supposed to look like, and so we were supposed to kind of recreate what the picture looked like. When I was at Bible College, I worked in the mailroom, and I delivered packages and letters all over the school, and I got to meet a lot of people. I thought it was an interesting job. A couple of the summers, I worked uh, for a manufacturing company, uh, one year I worked in maintenance, which was a big mistake. No one should hire me for maintenance. I don't think they knew I was that bad. Maybe they never found out. I don't know. But I also worked in the mailroom there. But one of my most interesting jobs I had was working for the what was then the Ohio Bell Telephone Company. It was called Ma Bell. And at the time I lived in Columbus, Ohio, and my title was research analyst. And I really loved this job because it was like detective work all day long. I was sorting discrepancies and problems. So basically what would happen is they would give me a printout and sometimes it would be a printout stacked four inches tall of discrepancies of various kinds related to the, the telephone records. And so for example, you might have two different phone numbers assigned to one particular address, which back then wasn't possible. And so it would be my job to try to sort out, well, which number goes with which address and and resolve that. And they gave me the tools I needed to do it, to do the research, and I kind of found it interesting. Some of the discrepancies I had to solve were a little bit complicated because they literally had me deciding which wires we're associated with with which phones in those I'd call them hub boxes. You know, some of you have those on your lawn or whatever else. But there, there's a, a hub box and a number of the neighbors. And I don't know if it's still this way. It was 40 years ago. Maybe it hasn't changed. But they'd be filled with wires of of your neighbor's phone uh, wires. And if something happened to your phone, the technician would come to the house. And if they determined that that there was not a wiring issue in the house, that had to do with outside the house, then they would send you to that box. Well, that box had wires of different colors, and every wire was associated with a different phone number. And sometimes, for example, there'd be a purple wire but three different phone numbers, would claim that particular purple wire. And of course, you don't wanna clip the wrong wire. You don't wanna fix the wrong thing. And so I'd be sorting these kinds of things all day long. And I enjoyed it. Again, it felt a little bit like detective work. Now, as Adam mentioned, we're beginning our new series today called Foretold. And this series is primarily about the amazing clues that are found throughout the pages of the Bible that point to God's one plan God's one story to save humanity by sending his own son to die on on the cross in our place and for our sin and to rise again from the dead, and that through faith in him, we can have eternal life. That is, from my perspective, the Bible's story, and it is God's plan, and it is God's plan and has been God's plan before he even created the world, as we'll see in a minute that God came up with a plan on how to restore people who have fallen away from God because of sin. How do we restore them into a relationship with our creator? And the plan was to send his son into this world to do that, to accomplish that. Now, throughout the pages of the Bible, from the beginning to the end, there are clues about this particular plan. And the clues are available, I think, for those who have a heart to find them. I've mentioned before that I think that God has designed his word in such a way that people who have a heart for God and a heart to really learn what God has to say will find treasure buried. Uh, Those that don't, those that just kind of passing along or just reading along, I don't think you'll catch the treasures that are there, but these clues are literally everywhere. The Bible is filled, of course, with story after story after story, but almost all the stories point to the one main story. Almost everything in the Bible points to the one main plan, and it's because God did not want to miss it. Now, my takeaway today is don't miss the message. Don't miss the message that God has given us through the pages of his word from Genesis to Revelation. Do not miss the message. Now, I kind of wish I wouldn't have to say that, but I'm reminded that in Jesus' day when he showed up, they missed the message. Despite all that God had given to them to help them understand and recognize the coming of the Messiah and exactly what was going to happen and what his life would be like and even that he would die and rise again, all of that is found in the pages of the Bible, but they missed it. Now, this series is mostly going to be about stories. Today is going to be a little bit of an exception because I want to look at specific verses where God was explicit today. Today. But the clues about this story are found in the Bible in a variety of different ways. For example, as I already mentioned, they're found in the stories themselves. A lot of the Bible stories, and we'll be looking at some of these, uh, these Bible stories are historic stories, things that really happen. They are true stories, but they're also prophecy. And they were intended, the ones that God included in the pages of the Bible were intended or placed there to point to the the plan, to the main story. But these clues are found in other places as well. For example, it's found in the various prophecies that I've talked about before, and we're going to look at some of those today. Prophecies throughout the pages of the Bible, hundreds and thousands of them all speaking to the same event. In addition to that, the Bible is filled with symbols. There are symbols all over For example, in the Old Testament, we read about Moses setting up the tabernacle, and God explicitly laid out for Moses how he was supposed to design the thing. Why? Every bit of it points to this plan. All the details of the temple are intended to help us understand God's plan to save humanity through the sending of his son to be the savior of the world, and we need to put our trust in him. They are found in the temple itself that Solomon built that you see the clues there and some of the biggest clues are found in the entire sacrificial system. Where you realize everything they did was symbolic of something else, because God did not want us to miss it and then God is also explicit in places we just. Spells out exactly what his plan is. And so I look at the Bible and I see there are stories and prophecies and symbols and God's explicit teaching. All these things are pointing to the fact that God has a plan. And it's an eternal plan to save us and draw us to himself if we don't miss it. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, one through four kind of summarizes the entire series. Apostle Paul was speaking And I want you to notice a phrase that appears toward the end of these verses. It's the little phrase, according to the scriptures. So Paul is gonna acknowledge that there's this amazing plan that God laid out and that people shouldn't be surprised because it was laid out according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse one, and I'll throw in comments along the way. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel proclaimed to you. First of all, gospel means good news. And so this is the message of good news. He says, I wanna clarify what this message is, this good news, which was proclaimed to you. He goes on to say, you received it, you received the message, and have taken your stand on it. Now, I hope this is true of all of you here, that this is the foundation you're standing firmly on this message and this was what paul's hope was as well you received it you stand on it he goes on to say in verse two you are also saved by it you're rescued through this particular good news message he goes on to say if there is an if here you hold to the message i proclaim to you unless you believe for no purpose i think what he's really saying here is unless you didn't really believe you took your stood on the, your, your stand on this message, and, and it'll save you. it'll rescue you from the penalty of your sin, if indeed you really believed, if you've really put your trust in Christ, who died and rose again for you. And then in verse three, he said, "I passed on to you as of most important. This is the most important thing. I think it's the most important thing in the Bible. It is the story. It is the plan of God. I passed on to you as of most important what I also received and here's the message that Christ died for our sins and then he adds according to the scriptures oh this was predicted ahead of time it was foretold this was going to happen and that he was buried that he was raised on the third day and then he says again according to the scriptures Saying this is, this is what we should know about. All of this was talked about ahead of time and now it's been fulfilled in our lifetime. And it's all according to the scripture, this plan, this great story, this thing that is most important, this message that is essential to save us and rescue us and allow us to enter into a relationship with our creator. All of it was spelled out ahead of time. J.P. Lange explains it this way. Here he, Paul, intimates That Christ's death for our sins was the fulfillment of the divine counsel foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. The use of the plural, and what he means by that is scriptures as opposed to scripture. So he says the use of the plural, the fact that Paul used the word scriptures, plural, points to the long line of witnesses which runs through the various portions of the sacred record. Throughout the entire Bible, there are witnesses everywhere, is what Paul is saying, and it's this long line, this string of, of stories and prophecies and illustrations and symbols and teaching, and all of it ties together to this main one story, that he died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried according to the Scriptures, that he would rise again according to the Scriptures. Now again, this series is mostly going to be about some of the stories that really point to the Easter story. But today I wanna look at some specific prophecies, some Old Testament references. I wanna demonstrate that this plan has been around from the beginning to the end and there's an actual progression here you'll see in the verses we're gonna use. I'm gonna focus on seven Old Testament references that prove that God planned ahead, what he was gonna do. that He was gonna send his son to be the savior of the world so don't miss the message. First reference is found in Genesis 3:15, And the point I want to make is that this predicted or pointed to Jesus's ultimate victory. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God predicted and told Adam and Eve that the ultimate victory over the devil was going to take place through a descendant of Adam and Eve. And that despite the sin that had come into the world, humanity was going to win in the end. Now, let me set the context for this verse, for uh, Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve had, of course, disobeyed God, and they ate from the one tree from which God had said, don't eat. And so they, they really had, everything was theirs. God gave them everything, but there's just one tree God said, don't touch that one, don't eat from that one, and specifically, don't eat from it. And they didn't listen, you remember, and sin came into the world, and with it came a, a curse upon all of humanity. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, with the three of them apparently standing there, Adam, Eve, and the devil, God laid out the consequences for what they did. He said to Adam, because you did this, this is what's gonna to happen to you. And then he said to Eve, because of this sin, this is what's gonna to happen to you. But then he spoke to the devil. And we read in Genesis 3.15 what he said to the devil. I will put hostility or enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he will strike your head and you will strike his heel now it's a really this is an odd verse first of all it's making the point that god said from now on i'm gonna i'm gonna put this hostility between you satan and humanity in other words you two are not going to get along i think god put that there so that we wouldn't fall more in love with the devil He said, no, I'm going to make it so that you two are in opposition to one another throughout history of humanity, that there's going to be this animosity between you. But then it says, he will strike your head, you will strike his heel. Now, who's the he? It's just odd. Out of nowhere, suddenly the pronoun he shows up. Well, he's going to strike your head. You're going to strike his heel. Well, the he here is the Messiah, Jesus It's making the point that a descendant of Eve would eventually bring about this victory that God had this rescue plan and all the way way at the beginning. I mean, this is Genesis 3. He's pointing to the day, well, the victory, I know what's coming. And he laid out this plan. A scholar by the name of K.A. Matthews explains it this way. The serpent was instrumental in the undoing of the woman and in turn, the woman will ultimately bring down the serpent through her offspring. The impact delivered to or by the offspring of the woman at the head is mortal, while the serpent will deliver a blow only at the heel. And so Satan would get some ground there. I think this is a reference to death in humanity, but maybe even specifically to Christ, who it seemed like. Satan had given him a fatal blow, but he rose again from the dead. It didn't work. But this he was going to crush the head of the evil one. Humanity would win in the end. A.P. Ross explains it this way. Satan would cripple mankind. You will strike at his heel, but the seed, Christ, would deliver the fatal blow. He will crush your head. And so all the way, again, back in the book of Genesis, you realize, I know things look bad at this point, but this is not the end of the story because God had a plan. So let's go to our second reference. It's found in Genesis chapter 49, and this has to do with Jesus's family line. It's found in Genesis 49 and verse 10. Again, let me set the context for this. You may remember that a man named Jacob uh, was given a new name by God. His name would be Israel and that Israel, would have 12 sons. And just as Israel was on his deathbed, and so we read toward the end of Genesis, Genesis 49, as Israel, as the man Israel is on his deathbed, he spoke a prophecy over each of his children, his 12 sons. And it's what he said to the fourth son that's most significant. The fourth son's name was Judah. And he says in verse 10, the scepter, and this is as in a king's scepter, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes. In other words, until the rightful heir shows up. This is gonna be Judah's holding on to this until the rightful heir shows up. And then it says, and the obedience of the people belongs to him. In other words, they're gonna give their obedience to this one who's gonna rise up, this one who, the implication here is that it's a king. Now, I want to note about this that the, the, the pronouns he and him are capitalized in my version of the Bible. It's a reference to the fact that this was going to be a, a divine one. It's a clear prophecy about the Messiah, the Son of God, who is going to come into this world and reign forever and ever. And it specifically now clarifies that he would be of this particular family line. He would come from the line of Judas. So things are getting a little bit more specific Now that prophecy, according to my research, was made in the year 1859 BC. So it's 1859 years before Christ was born, this particular prophecy was made. But before this Christ came into this world, something else happened, a member of the tribe of Judah was raised up by God, a man named King David. He was Israel's second king, and he came 859 years later. In other words, about 1,000 BC, BC, this young man was anointed by God to be Israel's second king, and he was of the tribe of Judah. But God said something to him that was very telling, and it specified even more the unfolding of this plan because God told him that one of his descendants would be the Messiah, the one who would reign. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, God said to David, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So what do we learn from this additional verse? Well, not only would again the Messiah come through Judah, but he would specifically come through the family line of David. And then we also learn that this ruler was going to be an eternal king. Now, what's interesting about the prophecy is when it was made, 1859 BC, Israel never had a king. No one was ruling. And yet God laid this out. Okay, someone's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And eventually a king would be raised up and God said, you're the one through whom this is going to be fleshed out. God said it all ahead of time. And it's a reference, by the way, to Christ's deity. But then we move forward to three, Jesus' birth. Found in Micah 5.2. Now, this is a reference I used at Christmas time. It's one of my favorite prophecies in the Bible. And once again, things are getting more and more specific as we move along. In Micah 5.2, we read Bethlehem Ephrathah. You're small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. And if you've heard me talk about this before, you realize that there are a couple amazing things about this prophecy that was made 700 years before Christ was born. First of all, that this, this king that's gonna rule forever and ever, this Messiah would come from the tiny town of Bethlehem, which was, it wasn't hardly a town. It was hardly even a village. There would have been one gas station and this Messiah would come from there. But then, of course, it describes him, and it says, well, this one, his origin, is is going to be, it says, from antiquity, from eternity. As I've said before, that this one who is coming is someone who's existed in the past, and suddenly again, we understand, oh, he must be God. And it's really clear if you look at it through that lens. Now, this entire plan as I referred to earlier, was something that God came up with before he even created the heavens and the earth. Peter talked about that in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Peter, speaking about Jesus, wrote, he was chosen before the foundation of the world. Chosen for what? Would it be our savior, our rescuer, our deliverer? He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times for you. Peter was simply saying, well, now all of you who are alive right now have got, you've you've been able to witness this. In other words, this plan has been in the works for a long time. Before the creation of the world, God came up with a plan involving the Son of God, Jesus, and now it's unfolding in your lifetime is what Peter was telling those who were reading his book. And then it goes on to say, who through him, You, through him, through Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This plan to save humanity that was made before the creation of the world uh, reveals something kind of interesting to me anyway, and that is that God knew, obviously, ahead of time that humanity was going to need a Savior. Before there wasn't an Adam and Eve, before they disobeyed God and went their own way, God chose the Savior. Why? Because he knew what was going to happen. He understood that if he created Adam and Eve and gave them the ability to choose for or against him, that they would choose poorly. He knew that they would disobey. And God also knew that they couldn't do anything about it. And I hope you understand this today. We can't do anything about our own sin. We are the problem. <laughs> sin comes from us because we are sinners we can't fix that we can't clean up what we are the reason you sin is because you are a sinner and it's like a tree and the fruit that comes out reveals what we are and we this is something we cannot fix and god knew it and so before he even created the earth before he he came up with a plan well this is what's going to happen humanity is going to disobey God and sin is going to come into the world and a curse is going to come upon all of humanity. All these things have to be this way because of the nature of sin. But I'm not going to leave them out to dry. I'm going to find a way to save them through my son Jesus. And so this was prophesied all ahead of time. The fourth reference has to do with Jesus' life and ministry. It's found in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Jesus' life and ministry. God told us in the Old Testament, again, about 700 years before Christ was born, what the ministry of Jesus would look like. Now, this particular reference, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, was the reference that Jesus read when he went to visit his hometown of Nazareth early on in his ministry. So Jesus went to his hometown. He went to a, a, the synagogue that was there where people gathered on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday. And Jesus walked up there and opened up the scriptures. And this was the, the verse; these were the verses he read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. It's what he said when he was done reading, though, that's the key here. He said, these verses have been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of these things. Now, again, this was written 700 years ahead of time, but Jesus is saying... it's being fulfilled this very moment. Let's read the verses, Isaiah 61, one and two. The spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal or bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, which I think this is, by the way, a reference primarily to spiritual prisoners, spiritual captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the jubilee, and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. And so we learn from this what this what does the ministry of this Messiah to look like when when someone comes up and they're they're claiming to be the Messiah or they may be the Messiah. What would you look for to decide is this the one? And in Isaiah here it says, well, the things he would do, he would preach, uh, he would heal, he would set free he would comfort and eventually he will punish. And Jesus did all of these things. Now, Jesus's ministry is fulfilled. I mean, there are many, many passages in the Old Testament that describe Jesus's ministry and what it would look like. This is why it's a little bit of a mystery how people missed it. Because it was kind of all laid out there, you know, where he's gonna be born, what his life was gonna be like, even the fact that he was gonna go to the cross, all these things. But again, I think even the stories and other clues are found everywhere. For example, I think Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's Jesus. Didn't he say, I'm the good shepherd, you have to come through me. There's one reference in the Old Testament that suggests that Jesus is walking on the water. It was a prophecy. It's something only God could do. It's something Jesus did. In Isaiah 53, we read that he came to heal our diseases. I think that's a spiritual healing, but it's also physical. It points to the miracles. And so when all these things began to unfold, people should have stopped and asked the question, who is this? Is this the one whose coming was foretold and has been foretold for hundreds of years? But people missed it. The fifth point includes two references. It's a prophecy about Jesus' death for the sins of the world. And I included two references here. I could have included 100. But they're Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 and Psalm 22:16 16 through 18. By the way, all these references are on the Ridge app. If you go to our app, you can find all these Bible references. So in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, we read, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed, Because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace, in other words, the punishment that would lead to us being at peace with God, the punishment that we enjoy and can have peace was on him. He was punished so we could have peace, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now, this one is remarkable because we're getting a speck more clarity. A couple ideas here are new in this particular prophecy. One is that he was going to die before he would reign. Now, this is something the disciples of Jesus didn't put together, and they didn't realize that. But this was foretold that he was going to die that he would have to die. But then the reason why he was going to die, suddenly the, 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 it becomes really, really clear that the reason he's going to die is for the sins of the world. It's because of your sins and mine that he would be punished for your iniquities and mine, your transgressions and mine, our wayward ways. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all and it's remarkable, these extra details. Now Psalm 22:16 then adds a little bit more to the picture. We read, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lot for my clothing. Now I've mentioned before that the very concept of a crucifixion, according to my research, it didn't appear until 519 B.C., about 500 years before Christ was born, the concept of a crucifixion came up. But 500 years before that, when Psalm 22 was written, he describes someone whose hands and feet are being pierced. He's describing a situation where people are staring at this person. And I'd say as he's hanging on the cross and that they would divide his clothing among themselves as they did, as the soldiers did. And suddenly, it's, I mean, it's, this is really, really clear. Now I recognize that there's some people who look at Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and because they don't receive the clues, they've decided that those passages don't deal with the Messiah at all. They deal with the, the nation of Israel through their suffering over the years, or, it's possible that, that this is just, um, it's referring to the authors. So David is describing what he experienced in Psalm 22 or Isaiah the prophet is describing, you know, what he suffered, but it's, that's not the case. And Peter himself, you, or I'm sorry, Philip, you remember used this Isaiah 53 passage when he was sharing the good news with this Ethiopian guy who was in Jerusalem and the guy was on his way home. He's a very important official in Ethiopia, or actually technically, I think it was called Nubia, where he was from. But he was on his way home, and God told Philip, go and join him in the chariot. And, And when Philip went up there, the guy was reading from Isaiah 53. He was reading the exact verses we just read. And then this guy asked Philip the question, who's the prophet talking about? Is it Isaiah himself? Is it another prophet? Who is it? And Philip Began with that passage and explained this was God's plan, that this was the Messiah who was going to die for the sins of the world. It made it real clear, but it's an amazing prophecy that all this was going to happen, and more details are being thrown in here. The sixth reference, Psalm 16, and verse 10, describes Jesus' resurrection. David wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for you will not abandon me to Sheol, which is the place of the dead, or the Greek form is Hades, or the pit. You will not abandon me to death. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Now, in my version of the Bible, the, the word faithful one is capitalized. Well, I won't let the faithful one. Who's the faithful one? Well, it's Messiah the Son of God, and and God the Son. Throughout history, there's never been anyone who died, who was buried, that didn't decay. I mean, that's what happens when people die. You die, you get buried, you decay. But this one, this faithful one, would not suffer any decay. Now, how do we know that's Jesus? How do we know that that's a reference to him? Well, Peter tells us in the New Testament, again, you need to have a heart to see it and hear it, but Peter understood this. Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, you remember, and thousands were gathered, and he talked about how Christ had come, and then he quoted from this psalm. He quoted the exact psalm, and then he said to the crowd that was gathered, you know, David, who authored this psalm here, he died he was buried and his tomb is still with us. It's still there, by the way. You can go to Israel and you can see the place where they say King David is buried. It's a casket there with the flag of Israel and then down below, I forget how far down it is. is supposed to be the remains of King David. And so Peter was saying, David who wrote this was not talking about himself. He was speaking of the resurrection of Christ. But again, it was written hundreds of years, a thousand years before Christ was even born, that there'd be this resurrection. It's remarkable. Now, Peter explained why the resurrection took place. He said it was impossible for death to hold the author of life in its grip. That's why Jesus is the very author of life. Death could not hold him in the grave. Last reference I'd like us to consider is Daniel 7, 13, and 14. These verses talk about the future and they refer to Jesus as eternal glory. The story's not done yet. It will be soon, I hope. Jesus is eternal glory. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Daniel writes, I continued watching in the night visions and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, which is God the Father, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, that one. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is the one about whom Paul would later write, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He probably got it from this exact reference here. Now, this is just a handful of references. I I think I could literally spend five years pointing them out as you go along, the stories and the symbols and everything about it. It's all revealed through the pages of the Bible. It raises the question, what do we do with it? Now, my takeaway again today is don't miss the message because all this was foretold and decided before the creation of the world that jesus would get the ultimate glory the son of god and god the son that he'd come from a particular family line genesis 49:10). that he would be born in a particular town and his existence would be predating his birth he would exist before he was physically born his life and ministry lots of references about what that would be like his death for the sins of the world his resurrection and the eternal glory that is to come. It raises the question, what will you do with Jesus? I wanna suggest here today, there is no second plan. There is no other story. For 6,000 years of biblical history, God has been telling us what he's planning on doing. It all centers around the sinless son of God who died on the cross, was buried and raised again for us. All we need to do is put our trust or confidence in him and so John wrote in John 1 12, as many as receive him, Jesus, to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become his children. Whoever puts their trust in him, that's the solution. God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Have you received Christ as your savior? It's a simple thing to acknowledge I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And you turn to Jesus. If you're already a believer here today, I, I do talks like this occasionally. They're like called an... Uh, apologetic talk because I want us, us to be stronger in our faith and to recognize that these things are, these are true and they've been spelled out and it allows us to grow stronger in our conviction about these things, but also it should help us develop our relationship with Christ because we have the privilege of bowing before him. Now we don't have to wait until one day every knee will bow and every tongue to confess. We can bow before him today and it's all because of through this amazing plan of God we experience forgiveness let's pray father we're just so grateful to you and this amazing plan we we could not have conceived of such a thing and yet it's so clearly laid out through the pages of your word help us to see it and receive it if any don't know you may they find Jesus today and help us live in the light of the truth of these verses one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus
0: is Lord pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge weekly podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at the ridge.church messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.